The following presentation was recorded at the Center for Christian Study in Charlottesville, Virginia. All audio rights are reserved and protected by international copyright. No part of this presentation may be reproduced in any form without the written permission by University Christian Ministries, Incorporated. The lecturer holds publication rights to all material. For more information, contact the Center for Christian Study at 434-817-1050. Okay, we come now to the third installment of a four-week series. And I said last time that was my favorite. I'm not entirely sure that's true now. Having done this one, this may be my favorite. And that probably will happen next week as well. Here's the overview of the series. Remember the first time we did the narrative substructure of Paul's theology. I love to tell the story. That was the big overview. The way in which um, the story of Judaism, the creator God, chose Israel to be a blessing to the world is redefined around Jesus. Because of his death, because of his resurrection, Paul understands the story of Israel now to have been redefined and fulfilled and summed up in Jesus. The Creator God chose Israel to be a blessing to the world. The Creator God chose Jesus as the new Israel and all those gathered around Jesus to be a blessing to the world. That's, that's the new story. The second installment was last week, Adam, Israel, servant Christ, does covenant theology get it right? And last time we um, talked about the centrality of Israel for Tom Wright and the place of Israel in covenant theology as well. More on that in just a minute. Tonight we'll do the imputed or disputed righteousness of God and the next week we'll do the importance of definition, righteousness, justification, faith, and works. Again, you'll remember that in, in, uh, in Paul, according to Tom Wright, Israel is absolutely central. The Creator God chose Israel to be a blessing to the world, so Israel's at the center of Paul's theology, according to Tom Wright. And Israel plays a different role in traditional Reformed theology. And this was one of the main points that I made last time. In traditional Reformed theology... The contrast isn't so much, um, the continuity isn't so much Israel and Christ. Um, Christ is the last Adam understood as Israel. The main contrast is between Adam and Christ. And Israel plays a secondary role. So, the main contrast is Adam, Christ, both of them in a covenant of works. Unfortunately, Adam fails to obey, so he brings a curse on humanity. Christ, by his obedience, brings a blessing for those who belong to him. And Israel really serves a secondary, um, even illustrative role. It's, um, it's, it's, it's a, at least at the temporal, at the national level, it illustrates the same story as Adam and Eve. God's people and God's land and God's presence, they have commandments, they disobey, they're exiled from God's land. So at the temporal level, the national level, Israel is simply a re repeat, a recapitulation of the story of, um, of Adam. And it has a very secondary role. It's, it's sort of a typological repeat of what happened with Adam. It doesn't have nearly the prominence that Adam does in Reformed theology. So this is, this is the question that we ended with last time. 
Which is the controlling story? In terms of understanding the role of Israel and the role of Adam vis-a-vis Christ, which is the controlling story? And this is the way I summed it up. Is it, as in Reformed theology, the story of Adam in Genesis 1 through 3, understood as a covenant of works, elaborated, illustrated perhaps, by the national story of Israel under the Mosaic Law? And this was my chart for that. Christ's obedience understood in light of Adam's disobedience with an illustrative place for Israel as well, where there's a works principle for Israel at that secondary level. Or alternatively, and here's Wright's own take on it, is the controlling story for Paul's theology the story of Israel. The proper answer to the story of Adam, but with its own meaning and purpose revealed in the Abrahamic covenant and summed up in the mysterious vocation of the servant. I want to talk about that for a few minutes before we get into imputation, because I realized last time we were sort of dealing at this level, um, sort of at the high principial level of, well, this is what Reformed theology believes, and this is what Tom Wright believes. What I'd like to do now is descend a little bit into the text itself and talk about a little bit about Galatians 3, Philippians 2, and Romans 5. So these are some of the most important texts and sort of ground Tom Wright's understanding in the text themselves because ultimately that's where we have to answer these things. We have to answer the question of the controlling story with reference to the text themselves. And so I thought it would be helpful for us to actually uh, descend in our airplane a little bit closer to the ground, maybe actually land and get out and walk around a little bit. So that's, that's the idea here. I want to start with Galatians 3 because it's one of those places um, that a covenant of works is seen most clearly. In fact, last time you may remember I had up on the, um, had up on the screen um, a quote from the Westminster Confession which was talking about Adam and Eve being under a covenant of works. And one of the proof texts for that was Galatians 3, which is talking about Israel. And I mentioned last week that the reason for that is because Israel is understood to be a repeat of the story of Adam and Eve at that level. So one of the proof texts for a covenant of works in the Reformed tradition, is this passage. I want to walk through it with you just a little bit and then ask a question about the covenant of works and, more specifically, um, whether or not there's the uh, active obedience of Christ in this case. Okay, back up. Passive obedience of Christ, you remember, is Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, and so our sins are imputed to him. He takes our sins by his death on the cross. He pays that penalty. That's what's called the passive obedience of Christ. The active obedience is, in Reformed theology, where he obeys the law for us. And because he's obeyed the law during his life, he brings in the blessing for us. So the passive obedience is where he pays off our debt. And the active obedience is where he actually brings in the inheritance for us. Passive obedience brings us up to zero but we're out of the red at least. Active obedience, that's where we get the billion bucks. Even better. We get eternal life and God's new creation. So that's the difference between active obedience and passive obedience. And it raises, this, this particular passage raises a question. Where is the active obedience of Christ? More, okay, let's, let's walk through it together. Galatians 3, 10 through 14. For all who are from the works of the law, 
that would be Jews, everyone who relies on works of the law, are under a curse. Why? For it is written, Paul says, Cursed be everyone who does not remain in all things written in the book of the law to do them. So if you don't do everything in the law, you're under a curse because the law says if you obey, you get a blessing, and if you disobey, you get a curse. And this was taken to be one of the clearest examples in Paul of a description of a covenant of works. If you disobey the law, you're under God's wrath. You're under a curse. Now it is evident that no one is justified by God by the law, for the righteous by faith shall live, not by doing, but by faith. But the law is not from faith. Rather, the one who does them, going back to that again, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So what we have here really is a contrast between curse and blessing. On the one hand, you have the curse for everyone who doesn't do the law. On the other hand, you have a blessing which comes in Jesus Christ. So that in Christ, verse 14, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. There's the curse. There's the blessing. So we've got this contrast back and forth all the way through the passage. And we've got a contrast between doing. The doing of the law, which leads you to be under a curse, typically taken to be a covenant of works, both for Adam and for Israel. And it's that doing that um, supposedly, provisionally, would lead to life. If you do them, you shall live by them. That taken to be covenantal life. So the blessings of the covenant, it brings life. If you do them, then you shall live. If you don't do them, you shall die. One thinks of Genesis, for example. And the day that you eat of it, and that day you shall surely die. On the other hand, um, in a covenant of grace, you don't get that covenantal life by doing, but by faith. So you see the contrast in the passage? Curse, doing, covenantal life coming by doing, but no one does it, so everyone is cursed on the one hand. And on the other hand, covenantal life coming by faith, and indeed, that does bring, that does bring life. The blessing of Abraham, the promised spirit, and life all come. So here's the contrast that we have. Now, this is the question that one of my grad students, when we had, we had a little Bible study on Galatians, actually it was Andrew Whitmer, asked the natural question here. Given this huge contrast between doing and faith, and if this is to be taken as traditionally as a covenant of works, if it is to be taken that way, why doesn't Paul carry through the idea? Why does, why, did he, why does he just leave it at this Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, but says nothing about Jesus actually fulfilling the law for us? If, if ever there were a place for, Jesus to say some, for Paul to say something about the act of obedience of Jesus, this would be it, right? Because he's just got done talking about the fact that you're cursed if you don't do the law. Then he says that Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Why not complete verse 13 by saying, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Okay, that would be the passive obedience of Jesus. He becomes the curse and exhausts the curse for us, pays the penalty. Why not then also say, 
and he fulfilled the law for us, doing it in our stead, or something of that nature. If Paul really had a notion of the passive obedience of Jesus dying on the cross, along with the fulfilling of the law, wouldn't this be the ideal place to put in something about Jesus doing the law in our place, since he does talk about him dying in our place? And so Andrew Whitmer says in the course of our Bible study, well, where's the act of obedience of Jesus here? I say, good question. Very good question. That would seem to be the natural summation if, that's, if Paul is actually dealing with a covenant of works here. Or, or, to put, or, or to back up, if Paul is actually understanding the obedience of Jesus in terms of his obedience to the law. Because remember that in Reformed theology, Adam didn't obey the law, Israel didn't obey the law, Christ did obey the law. That's the way it works in covenant theology. But there's nothing here about obeying the law. So what is it that Jesus is obeying? That's the question that Tom Wright is raising again and again. What is it that he's obeying? Is he obeying the law or not? And Tom Wright's answer is no, it's not the law, it's the, what is it? It's the vocation of the servant. And Tom Wright, again, grounding this exegetically, grounding this in the text, Tom Wright tries to show that, and I think successfully shows that, in, in Philippians 2 and in Romans 5. Those, by the way, are the two passages in Paul where the, where the obedience of Christ is explicitly spoken of. So, if you, wanna, if you want to um, look at a passage where it's talking, actually talking about Jesus or Christ's obedience, it's Philippians 2 and Romans 5. So, what I want to do is look at those two passages and help us to understand why Tom Wright insists on seeing the obedience of Jesus as being to the servant's vocation, that suffering servant in Isaiah, rather than to the law. Because he, he's not just making up theories, he's trying to ground them in, in the interpretation, the exegesis of the text. So, let's do... Was there a question? Okay. Let's do, um, let's do Philippians. And now, I know that's way too small, uh, so I'm not expecting you to read that. You have a handout here. And it's the one that says Philippians 2 and Isaiah 53. This is that beautiful hymn in Philippians 2, where Paul, um, speaking to these Philippians who are um, quarreling with each other, being very divisive, and he commends the example of Christ. And in some, you'll remember in, this, in, in Philippians 2, he speaks of Christ who humbled himself, even unto death, for the sake of his people. And then God exalted him. And then in the rest of Philippians, that becomes the pattern for Christians. If Christ did it, if he humbled himself for your sake and then God exalted him, then you also should be humbling. It's very practical theology. You also should be humbling yourself for the sake of others. And then the implication being, and actually made explicit in Philippians 3, God will exalt you just as he exalted Christ. That's the idea. He will give you also a glorious body. In the course of making this practical theology, very theological but very practical, Paul mentions the obedience of Christ in a way which connects it with both Adam and the servant. And the, um, the obedience is in verse, well, verse 8, the third stanza. You'll notice on the left-hand side of that handout that you have, there, it's divided up into six stanzas. And fair warning, this is not precisely the way Tom Wright does it. I've gotten this from other people as well, but I think this is a, the way that I usually explain the relationship between Adam and the servant in Philippians 2, and I think Tom Wright would approve. In, um, in, in verse 8, which is sort of the third stanza of this hymn, 
it speaks of Jesus becoming obedient to death. So there's the obedience right there. And notice that it's an obedience to death. All right. So this is one of the places where the obedience of Jesus comes explicitly into play. Now we'll back off of that, come back to it in a minute, and talk about what's going on here. Again, the question being, what is Jesus being obedient to in Philippians chapter 2? Okay, the first stanza of this hymn, Jesus Christ, who being in God's image, did not consider equality with God something to be seized. Now, those of you who have NIVs and read that all the time, this, this will be jarring because you'll rem- in the NIV it says something like, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And most of us are used to reading it as being in the very nature of God and as being a statement on God's nature. Um, There's good reason to think that in Paul, that's not what he meant. He wasn't talking about the nature of God. Probably that should be translated image of God. Um, And the reason for that is that it's it's, it's a Greek word, um, morphe, which means to form. We we use that too, like to morph into something, to change or to to be formed into something else, Um, which Paul very, very often connects with image being conformed to the image of the Son, for example. In English, as in Greek, conformed and image. They go together for Paul. So probably being in the morphe or the form of God, probably Paul meant um, the image of God. And it makes perfect sense. Because if Jesus is in God's image and did not consider equality with God something to be seized, He's being interestingly contrasted with someone else. Who else was in the image of God and did consider equality with God something to be seized? Lucifer, um, almost everybody says that first off. But of course, um, actually Lucifer doesn't, that sort of of, uh, narrative doesn't play a huge role for Paul, but another one does. Who in Genesis 3 considered equality with God something? Adam. The image of God, something to be seized. So what we have here, right at the very beginning of the Philippian hymn, is a contrast between Jesus, the last Adam, the image of God, who did not consider equality with God something to be seized, although he was already God, and the first Adam, who was just a dinky human being, at least at that stage, And he did consider equality with God something to be seized. We have a huge contrast going on here, set up right here in this first stanza. Isn't that beautiful? So this is is first Adam, last Adam uh, stuff going on. And this, again, is being used by Paul to say, look, if he was way up there and he could humble himself and become a human being, don't you think you could get along? Euodia and Syntyche and all those who are bickering in Philippians? Okay. So, he's the last Adam who humbled himself, unlike the first Adam who tried to seize equality with God. But how did he then humble himself? How did he become the last Adam? How does that contrast actually work out for Paul? And that comes up in the second stanza. And you can write on your sheet if you like. I'm just trying to make it larger here. Stanza two, no. He He didn't try to seize equality with God. He poured himself out, taking servant's form, becoming in men's likeness. This translation from A.M. Hunter, actually, another British scholar. He poured himself out. There have been endless discussions about what it meant for him to, as the NIV says, to uh, empty himself. 
Um, and most of those discussions are probably misplaced because what we have here are allusions to, guess what? The suffering servant. To Isaiah 53. And that's why I have Isaiah 53 in its full text on the right-hand side of that sheet that I handed out. And, I, and I'm trying to point out some connections. Connections that people immersed in, saturated in the Old Testament, would have gotten, which are completely lost on us. We will get allusions in Aladdin, the, you know, the movie. We'll get um, allusions in the latest movies to all kinds of things culturally, but we'll miss them in the Old Testament. These, 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 are, these are tough allusions. They're tough echoes. But they're things which those immersed in the Scriptures would have gotten. And we have to be, they have to be pointed out to us. Taking servant's form, allusion of 50, uh, Isaiah 52, 11, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Same sort of story in Isaiah 52 and 3 as you have in, in Philippians 2. It's humiliation. That's what Isaiah 53 focuses on. Followed by exaltation. So the story of the servant in Isaiah 53 is the story of Jesus. Humbled, afflicted, all the way to death. And yet, as even, in the, even at the very head of the uh, Isaiahic song in 52 and 53, ultimately raised and lifted up and highly exalted. See, my servant will act wisely. He'll be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. So here we go. Taking the servant's form in Philippians. See, my servant will act wisely. And then the other connection, and you'll see what I'm doing with these letters. I've put them to the side here. So A corresponds, obviously, to A down here to show you where the, uh, where the echoes are coming from, from Isaiah 53. So what we have here is allusions or echoes of the kind of language that was actually in, in Isaiah 53. So, he poured himself out. Seems to be an allusion then to Isaiah 53:12. See, I will give the servant a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death. There been endless discussions in Philippians about what it meant for Jesus to empty himself. Did he empty himself of his divinity? Or just the prerogatives of divinity? What sort of emptying was it? They're probably all completely beside the point. He poured himself out like a sacrifice, like a drink offering. So it's not going into details about precisely what comes out of the cup. That's really irrelevant. The point is, is that he was a sacrifice. He poured himself out um, unto death. So the way in which Jesus fulfills the vocation of the second Adam is by fulfilling the vocation of the suffering servant. seems very clear in Philippians 2. And then one more, third stanza, and being found in fashion as man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient unto death, and that a cross death, or death on a cross. And again, he humbled himself. That's that, that word humbling is not in the Hebrew, but most of you will probably know that by the time of Jesus in the early church, Hebrew wasn't the, well, Hebrew never was the world language. It never was the empire language. Aramaic had been. But Greek was definitely the empire language of Jesus' day. So, the Hebrew scriptures have been translated into Greek, and that's what most people read. And in that Greek translation, interestingly here, it says, in his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. 
That's actually the text that the Ethiopian eunuch was reading in Acts 8.32. If you go back and read that, it actually says humiliation there. So readers of the Greek version of of that Hebrew Old Testament, when they heard the word humble, not only would they think generally of the story of Isaiah 53, that word is actually found in the Greek translation. So he humbled himself in his humiliation. He was deprived of justice. Not only that, becoming obedient unto death. Well, again, in that Greek version, because of the iniquities of my people, he was led to death. And also later on, in Isaiah 53.12, because he poured out his life unto death. The point I'm making is this. There's not just one or two echoes of the suffering servant in Philippians. There's three, four, five. Constant. How is it that Jesus becomes the second Adam, the last Adam? By being the suffering servant. He fulfills the vocation by going to death, even death on a cross, and then being exalted afterwards. The story of the suffering servant is the story of Jesus, and that is the way in which he becomes the proper Adam, the last Adam. And that's pretty clear, I think. And uh, in Philippians 2, Tom Wright, I think, has an excellent point here. The last three stanzas, which we won't do now, take my New Testament course, we're going to do that in more depth had to do with his exaltation, which also has lots of quotes from Isaiah, at least one extremely significant quote from Isaiah at the end. We'll leave that for the moment. The point that I'm making here is that the the obedience, the Adam-like obedience of Jesus, the Adam-like obedience of Jesus stanza one is explicated in terms of the servant in stanzas two and three. So, yeah, Lois. Clarification. Yeah. Clarification. Um, as you point out, it's not just suffering, it's suffering unto death. I don't find Andrew's question in Galatians the natural question. Christ redeeming us from the curse of the law. I think of Hebrew, the sacrifices of the law could never make the people perfect. And I think of your book in which being under the curse of the law is like slavery. And so Christ satisfying that sets us free to live by faith where they lived by the law. Yeah, well, that's right. That's that, I mean, it, that's that's all very necessary. In fact, we'll, no, no, that's that's exactly right, and we'll come back to that. That Exodus narrative is, is extremely important, but in Reformed theology, that's only halfway there. You know, in other words, you can talk about the redemption, and you can talk about the but the passive obedience of Christ. But Reformed theology insists on the act of obedience, his fulfilling of the law, and if that's as important to Paul as it is in Reformed theology one would expect Paul to round it out and say, not only is this this utterly necessary and foundational death of Jesus on the cross, but by the way, he also fulfilled the law, which actually no one can fulfill in Galatians 3. No one has fulfilled this. Everyone was under a curse, but Jesus fulfilled it. Jesus did the law, and as a result, he's under the blessing which we share. So all I'm saying, I I agree completely with you. I'm just saying that in Reformed theology, you would expect... Paul to move on and, and, and sort of round things off and, and to complete the theology. He doesn't there. He leaves it at the death of Christ. In Philippians 2, again, it's an obedience unto death because it's an obedience understood in terms of the suffering servant. And same thing happens in Romans 5. Now, Romans 5 is the big text because, you know, Philippians 2, if you're not reading it really carefully, you can miss the Adam echoes. You can miss the story of Adam there. I mean... For a lot of us, I imagine that interpretation was fairly new when I was saying that 
that Jesus is being compared to Adam in Philippians 2? Well, you can't miss it in Romans 5 because it mentions Adam again and again and the obedience of Christ vis-a-vis Adam. Uh, before we get to Romans 5, this is, this is the way that uh, Tom Wright sums it up. The theological structure I have proposed shows that servant Christology, all right, understanding Christ as a servant, that is a suffering servant from Isaiah, and Adam Christology, understanding him in terms of Adam, belong well together and cannot be played off against each other. The way in which he becomes the last Adam is by being the servant. They have to be understood together, not against each other. But in the last analysis, both are Israel Christologies. So here's the key. There's once again the centrality of Israel in Tom Wright's understanding of Paul. Because the servant Christology, the story of the suffering servant, is the story of Israel in Isaiah 53. The story of Adam is ultimately the story of Israel. And both of those stories are now coming to their climax in Christ. One of Tom Wright's early books, which had a huge influence on me, was The Climax of the Covenant. The climax of the Abrahamic Covenant is in Jesus Christ in His death on the cross. Not His obedience to the law, but His obedience to the servant's vocation. And the servant understood in terms of Israel. Adam understood, or at least the last Adam, understood in terms of Israel. So hopefully you're beginning to get a feel for uh, how Tom Wright approaches these things. The same last Adam and servant connection may be found in Romans 5. This may be surprising because it does, it doesn't, it's not as though Paul explicitly mentions it or has even the, the kind of echoes, the same wealth of echoes that you have in Philippians 2, but it is unmistakably there. Look in Romans 5.19. Now here... If ever there were a contrast between the disobedience of Adam and the obedience of Christ as the last Adam, here it is. Romans 5.19 For as by the one man's disobedience, Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, Jesus is the last Adam, the many will be made righteous. So there you go, the verse that's sort of at the heart of the contrast between Adam and Christ and their respective obedience and disobedience. Look at Isaiah 53.11. Out of the anguish of his soul, speaking of the servant, he shall see and be satisfied by, by his knowledge shall the, righteous, shall the righteous one my servant make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Let me read that again. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one my servant make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Notice... Notice the similarity. By the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. My servant will make many to be accounted righteous. People wonder why has many there. What does he mean by that? Well, here it is. Many are being made righteous in Romans 5.19, echoing the the, uh, thought of Isaiah 53 again. And so what, even in Romans 5, what is the obedience of Jesus? It's the obedience of the suffering servant. Even when he's seen to be the last Adam, as he clearly is in Romans 5, explicitly is in Romans 5, it's understood in terms of the suffering servant. So Tom Wright has strong exegetical footing here. 
I mean, however we construe our theology, it seems to me necessary that we're going to have to understand that obedience, whatever else it may include. That obedience has to include fundamentally, primarily, the obedience of the servant. Because in both passages where he mentions the obedience explicitly, it, um, Isaiah 53 is echoed. And in other passages uh, where, where one might think, such as in Galatians 3, that he should mention the um, active obedience of Christ more explicitly, he focuses on the death of Christ, the servant-like death of Christ. So Tom Wright says in his NIB uh, commentary on Romans, with respect to this passage in Romans 5.19, with audible overtones of Isaiah 53.11, Paul declares that as Adam's disobedience gave the many the status of being sinners, so Christ's obedience has given the many the status of being righteous. So Christ is obedient to the servant's vocation, according to Tom Wright. And here are the, the slides. In Gal- it makes sense of Galatians 3, makes sense of Philippians 2, makes sense of Romans 5. He's obedient to the servant's vocation. And then, according to Tom Wright, this solves the problem of Israel's and Adam's disobedience. Now, I'm going to do something a little bit parenthetical here, because I'm I'm moving along to how Wright sees this as ultimately being settled. But the way in which Wright talks about the obedience of Adam and the obedience of Israel, the first Adam and Israel, um, sounds very much like a covenant of works. I mean, he admits quite freely that Adam and Eve were cursed because of their sin, on the basis of their sin. And, so, and Adam was, and Israel rather, uh, went into exile because of their disobedience. That's that's not really a problem. He says the Torah, the Torah, the law, that is, brings the curse for Israel because Israel has not kept it. Rather, Israel as a whole has failed in her task of being the light to the nations. There's that storyline again. The Creator God chose Israel to be a blessing to the world. Of being the seed of Abraham through whom the varied families of the world would be blessed. The death of Jesus finally exhausted the curse which stood over against the covenant people so that the blessing of Abraham might, after all, come upon the Gentiles. Um, Speaking in language very similar to uh, Galatians 3, as we saw. And when you see this kind of language, you might be tempted to see here a modified covenant of works. In fact, I'm tempted to see that um, because... Right, in his own words, freely admits that the Torah brings a curse for Israel because Israel has not kept it. So, so Israel's disobedience brings, her, brings the curse upon her. Israel's failure here, um, she failed the task of being the light to the nations, and Jesus then exalts the curse. So again and again, he has this, they went into exile because they disobeyed. By my lights, that's the very definition of a covenant of works. Which is why, even though Tom Wright avoids that particular language like a plague, probably because of the associations that it has in Reformed theology and all the connections it has, still seems to me to be appropriate. That is, Israel disobeyed, brought a curse upon herself instead of being a blessing to the nations. Jesus, now this is a different sort of understanding. Jesus obeyed, 
and brought in the blessing, brought in the blessings of the new age for himself and for all those who belong to him. I think I saw a hand back here. Nicolene. Well, the Pharisees were supposed to really know the law of the best, and Jesus was constantly challenging them on the law, and he was constantly telling them, you know, you've got it all wrong. This is the way it's supposed to. Does Tom address, Tom Wright, does he address it? Well, he he um he doesn't need to with Paul's theology. I mean, he would he would he, he actually does a lot of stuff with the Gospels, like you know. But um, but for Paul's theology, I mean, he doesn't address because that's not what Paul Paul's not talking about the Pharisees. But I mean, he would again he would address he he again would address the issue not as being the Pharisees' problem not being one of they were legalistic, the Pharisees' problem of one as being. Um, um, nationalistic, of being concerned about keeping the blessing for themselves, as being like a postman who ha- keeps all the letters instead of understanding the way in which they need to go out into the world. So the problem with, with the Jews of Jesus' time, according to Tom Wright, whether it's in the Gospels or in Paul, was not legalism. The problem was their focus upon themselves and failing to see the way in which they were to mediate the blessing um, to the nations. Just related, that, that find that last statement, the death of Jesus, Totally amazing. Is it is it too strong to say Jesus solves Israel's problems so Israel can finally save the world? I mean, that's almost the feeling. Well, so Israel in the person of Jesus can finally save the world because Israel has been completely redefined, and so so Israel has now devolved completely upon Jesus. He is the new Israel, and so he as the new Israel solves the problem of the world. And that, and that then becomes the mysterious purpose of the law for Tom Wright. The, the purpose of the law was always to focus the sins of the world upon Jesus so that they might be then further focused upon the Messiah and he is now the new Israel. If you stay in the old Israel, you just stay under a curse. That's why you really need to quickly join yourself to Christ and be in Christ instead of in Israel. If you're in Israel, you remain under a curse. As was proved historically by AD 70 where God's judgment comes upon Israel quite, hist- quite historically, quite literally. That's the way to stay under the curse. So, um, one might be tempted to see a modified covenant of works. Frankly, I cannot see a reason not to, to understand it as a covenant of works as long as you do it in the, way, um, in the way that Tom Wright explains it. That is, the obedience of Jesus brings in the age of blessing that Israel was supposed to bring in, that Adam was supposed to bring in, but did not because of their disobedience. And he brought it in by his obedience to the mysterious vocation of the suffering servant. But uh, Tom Wright would not see it that way. He, he, he denies that there's any sort of covenant of works. Uh, and, and the reason is because... Well, let me read this to you. When the Torah arrived in Israel, it meant that Israel copied and recapitulated the sin of Adam, showing that Israel was indeed sinful. Okay? So that's, again, a connection between Israel um, and her disobedience and the disobedience of Adam, which on first blush might sound like he's referring to a covenant of works. But no! Some people have seen this as an indictment of Israel, of the Jew trying to earn justification or salvation by works, righteousness, to gain favor with God by keeping the law. But that is not the point. Again, 
Let me just remind you, to be fair in covenant theology, most covenant theologians don't use the word earn. So he's using a word that most covenant theologians don't use, and most covenant theologians don't use the word merit. They would say that God condescended and gave his people this unbelievable deal that if they obeyed relatively few commands, he would bless them in a way far out of proportion to their obedience. So... So in some ways, this is a caricature of, of the uh, Reformed understanding of legalism, although maybe, maybe it fits better with the Lutheran understanding. But that is not the point. Paul exonerates not only the law, but also, interestingly, the I. It is no longer I that do it. Now, he's speaking of Romans 7. It is no longer I that do what he says, verses 17 and 20 in Romans 7, Not only the law, but Israel itself appear to be trapped in a negative spiral. But whereas the law was spiritual, Israel belongs, in other words, on the Adam side of the equation. The law does not enable Israel to get out of that problem. It merely intensifies it. And and Wright is pointing out an interesting point. I think he may fail to see the other side of it, but he's, he's making an interesting point. He's saying, look, in a covenant of works, you put the blame on Israel. In a covenant of works, you put the blame on Adam. And frankly, I think that that's where the blame belongs, and that's where you see it a lot of times in the Old Testament. However, Wright also notes that Paul also removes some of the blame from Israel, exonerates Israel to some extent. And that's what he's focusing on, the fact that Israel really isn't being blamed here as much because in Romans 7, I delight to do the law. Israel delights to do the law. The problem is not so much Israel's own heart in the matter, perhaps, perhaps going too far, but that's not, that's not the main problem. The, the problem is the law itself has set up a condition of bondage. And so what, why does God then use the law to intensify sin? And this is what I alluded to just a moment ago. God wanted sin to be brought to its full height in order that he might deal with it, condemn it, punish it once and for all. And that's the mysterious, that's the mysterious function of the law. The law is, um, is not there to somehow blame the people. The law there is to focus the problem, to focus the bondage, so that in due time, God's Messiah can come into that position of bondage and release his people and release the world. And this, is, this brings us to the fundamental storyline for, for Tom Wright. The death of Jesus exhausts the curse and brings God's people out from the bondage of sin into the new Exodus trek toward the new creation. I want to emphasize that. For Tom Wright, redemption is fundamentally release from bondage, well, which is kind of what redemption means, Right? <laughs> But, but he emphasizes that aspect of captivity. You're in bondage. It's like you're in, hey, Egypt. And so, yes, okay, I think there's still a place for p- placing the blame on Israel, but that's not, that's not Tom Wright's emphasis. And frankly, in certain places, it's not Paul's emphasis either. The, position, the, the emphasis is on this position of bondage that you're con- Bondage under sin exacerbated by the law. 
And because you're under this bondage, you need to be brought out from the bondage. So how does God do it? Well, in his mysterious purposes, he actually gives the law not to make the problem better, but to make the problem worse. Increasing the bondage so that Israel becomes the place where the bondage is most potently experienced. And then Jesus comes as the new Israel, summing Israel up in himself, and he takes that bondage upon himself in order to break the shackles, come out of captivity, and begin the new exodus. And the way, in which you, the way in which you come out into the new exodus is by living out the story of the suffering servant. Interestingly, the suffering servant... Isaiah 53 has often been interpreted as a picture of Israel's experience in exile. And the resurrection of the servant in Isaiah 53, if you ask a lot of Jews, they'll say it's the picture of Israel being restored from exile. Well, that's precisely the point that Tom Wright is making about Paul's theology. God's people are in bondage. And so in order to bring them out of bondage, Jesus lives out the story of Israel as told in Isaiah 53. He himself goes down to the humiliating death, bears um, all of the sins of Israel, takes their afflictions upon him, exalts the curse. And then once that's happened, according to Isaiah 53 and many other places in Isaiah, now the restoration can begin. And that's where we are in the storyline. Because Jesus has done that, according to Isaiah 53, we know where we are on the timeline. The restoration can now come. And it's not really about obeying the law. Yeah. So, um, in, in Reformed theology, Sin is, is classically divided into sin is guilt and sin is corruption and typically dealt with in almost parallel fashion, although sin is guilt often um, kind of subverts and overwhelms sin is corruption so that sin as guilt is a result of disobeying God's command and, and sin becomes... And the imputation of Adam's sin. Yeah, completely reified in sin as guilt. But kind of what you're saying, right the same was that um, the reality of sin, the bondage of sin, the, the, the fact of sin shocked through the universe is there. It's the root of alienation. And the law, the law provides a, in a way the law provides a language um, so that this huge, this huge issue can be dealt with. The law, the law doesn't necessarily create um, does the law create new circumstances whereby sin well it intensifies the problem that's why I mean interestingly in Reformation theology you usually have two or three uses of the law um, one, one of which is to constrain sin you know that the law is there to make people sin less well that's not Paul's theology at all Paul's theology based on his knowledge of history redemptive history judgment history is that the law actually intensifies sins, makes things worse. And so, so according to Paul and Tom Wright's understanding, sin comes in simply to intensify, make the problem worse at every level, you know, linguistically, but I mean, but make it worse at every level. They actually are sinning more than the nations because they have a, they have a, a standard to transgress and they keep putting their big hairy toe over that line. And as a result, they come under more and more judgment. So at every level... Um, they're coming under, under more curse, more judgment, and that's ex- especially clear in their exile, which in Tom Wright's understanding continues right up to the present day. So experientially, historically, 
in every respect. The, the, the law makes it worse precisely so that sin can be gathered up in a heap, as it were, and placed on the Messiah. But it's also the law, in that the law makes it worse, demonstrates the, the gravity and, uh, of sin because this yeah. uh, redemptive, pedagogical, even though it's provisional, yeah. um, thing, that is the law that's given and, and part of this redemptive historical story whereby God is dealing with it. Um, it actually, the, the fact that it makes things worse is sort of absurd, but it shows the, yeah. the, the degree, um, I, I guess, the... And it shows in utter clarity the position. Yeah, and, and, and shows in, in, in utter clarity to, to show the true position of humans as, as now um, dramatized in Israel which is bondage. You want to see what your true condition is? Well, look at Israel. They're in exile. You may not know that you're in exile too, but you are. Um, but, but this is a picture of the human condition. It's bondage. You need to be brought out of that kind of bondage. The Messiah will now enter into that bondage, a la Galatians 4, and bring you out. Yeah. How did the statement come in that Paul made about not knowing the law, not knowing the law well, oh, it does, yeah. I mean, that's, that's in Romans 3 and then picked up in Romans uh, 7, yeah. Um, yeah, it, it, it increases your knowledge of sin, but not only that, it increases your, um, your condemnation as well. Because once, once you know it, then you, then you start disobeying. It's not, it's, not, it's not platonic at all. It's not the notion of if you, know the, if you know the good, you'll do the good. It's more like if you know the evil, you'll do the evil. It's sort of the flip side of Socrates. Yeah. If you see Isaiah 53 as Israel, the suffering servant, how can Israel's exile, which is judgment for their own sins, be redemptive for mankind? In the language of Isaiah 53, makes many righteous. I have trouble seeing how it can make many righteous when they're being punished for their... Well, because, because Israel was always intended to, and God's mysterious plan was always intended to be representative of the rest of the world, in the same way that Adam was. That Adam represents the rest of the world, Israel represents the rest of the world, and her vocation was to take the sins of the world, God's mysterious suffering plan, was to take the sins of the world upon herself and redemptively to, um, to bring about freedom for herself and the others. The problem is, is her, sin, her sin kept getting in the way. And in God's sovereignty, he always intended for the Messiah to be the one who would actually successfully accomplish this. I, I better stop, otherwise we're not even going to get to imputation. Oh, Sure. Well, he's talking about the remnant, but that, that remnant is a narrowing down to Jesus. Jesus becomes the ultimate remnant. Exactly. So, so you have this sort of thing where it, Israel is rejected in the, you know, it's the Romans 11 thing. Israel is rejected, Romans 9. So Israel is rejected and then the remnant is saved. And so that, the, the remnant becomes a remnant of one. You've got the army of one and you've got the remnant of one. So, and, and the remnant of one is... A, sorry, that was, that was completely bizarre. <laughs> he is an army of one. There you go. Okay. So it comes back to that, that question again, which is the controlling story? And hopefully, in light of what we've done, um, the second of those may actually be a little more attractive at this point, or at least you understand where right is coming from. Is it the story of Adam, understood as a covenant of works, elaborated at a secondary level by the national story of Israel? 
Or is it the story of Israel, the proper answer to the story of Adam, but with its own meaning and purpose revealed in the Abrahamic covenant and summed up in the mysterious vocation of the servant? Okay, that then, with that understanding of what obedience is all about, we can now talk about imputation. I didn't want to just leave it at this abstract level because you remember that in covenant theology, it's the obedience of the Son that's imputed to us. It's the righteousness of the Son, His obedience, which becomes our obedience. Um, there's a strange way, a sense in which that's true, that the, the vocation of the servant becomes ours, but not through imputation. Tom Wright famously denies that Paul teaches imputation in the way understood by the Reformation. So now having laid all this groundwork, we can actually talk about the difference between imputation as understood by the Reformation, which we actually did last week, the imputation of our sin to Christ and the imputation of his righteousness or obedience to us, um, and can compare and contrast it with what Wright is doing. Again, to remind you, accusations are, are being flung back and forth at this point, and, and things are heating up. This is, this is uh, getting to be more than a tempest in a teapot at this point. The Presbytery of the Mississippi Valley, just to remind you of the letter that we read a couple weeks ago, we believe that the clarity of the gospel... The freeness of grace and justification and the assurance of the believer are all undermined by the formulations of the new perspective on Paul, N.T. Wright, Norman Shepherd, and the Auburn Avenue theology, Federal Vision theologies. No greater tragedy could befall the PCA today than to compromise the lucidity of her preaching of the glorious gospel of grace, yet that is we fear precisely what we are facing. And Tom Wright is mentioned there because he doesn't understand things traditionally. Here's Tom Wright, not responding to this specifically, but responding to his detractors on the evangelical side. This is in a Q&A um, for the Wright Said List Serve group uh, about a year ago. I believe passionately, Tom Wright says, that Scripture must be the judge of all our traditions, no matter how venerable, and that the way imputation has developed as a particular major theme in some Protestant theology may be one of those traditions that needs reassessing in the light of Scripture itself. Not just what, of what our traditions traditionally tell us that Scripture says. And you can hear um, the emphasis there. Not what our traditions traditionally tell us. He insists on Scripture being the interpreter of tradition rather than the, than the other way around. And so, um, he's, he's, he, uh, he understands himself to be truly Protestant in that respect. <laughs> the Bible is my creed, ultimately. Okay, here's another quote from uh, Tom Wright from that same Q&A session last year. A question on imputation. My sense is that within certain sub-traditions of Protestantism, the word imputation has been made to carry far, far more baggage than it even begins to be in the New Testament, and that's a warning sign to me. As far as I can see, Paul's central statements of something I, that I might be prepared to say imputation about are in a passage like Romans 6, where the logic runs, by baptism you are in Christ. Notice he's actually replacing imputation with incorporation. Not, not something being imputed or transferred to you, but the fact that you're in Christ. He sees that as truly the main Pauline emphasis. You are in Christ. 
Therefore, what is true of Christ is true of you. Therefore, specifically, his death and resurrection are true of you. Therefore, you must calculate this. Do the sums, work out who you actually are, and then live accordingly. But I think that this provides a somewhat different grid of understanding to normal imputation theology. The reckoning thus takes place within and as part of incorporation into the people of the Messiah. So he'll insist on the centrality of that category of incorporation. We are in Christ, and he understands imputation very differently. Now let me explain why. I'm going to start with 2 Corinthians 5.21, which is sort of the place where everyone goes to prove imputation. So I, start, I, just, I thought I'd just start with, with the main text. This is what Charles Hodge says about 2 Corinthians 5.21, and I'll show you the text in a minute, but by way of whetting your appetite, this is what Hodge says about this passage. There is probably no passage in the Scriptures in which the doctrine of justification is more concisely or clearly stated than in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Our sins were imputed to Christ, and His righteousness is imputed to us. So what we're about to read is, is... According to Hodge, the proof text, the proof text of imputation, both ways. Our sins going to Jesus, his, coming to us, his righteousness coming to us. He bore our sins, we are clothed in his righteousness. Christ bearing our sins did not make him morally a sinner, nor does Christ's righteousness become subjectively ours. It is not the moral quality of our souls. Rather, our sins were the judicial ground of the sufferings of Christ, so that they were a satisfaction of justice. And his righteousness is the judicial ground of our acceptance with God, so that our pardon is an act of justice. It is not mere pardon, but justification alone that gives us peace with God. That's Hodge, is quoted by John Piper in his book, Supporting Imputation. Um, that's on the impu- uh, let's see, Count It Righteous in Christ is the name of it. Here's the text. 2 Corinthians 5, 17-21. And the main part is is 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this is often taken to be the most concise summary of both of those aspects of imputation. He takes our sin. God made Christ to be sin. So that would be the imputation of our sin to him so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the righteousness of God here understood to be Christ, then coming upon us. So according to 2 Corinthians 5.21 in this understanding, this sums up those two imputations. And this would become the, one of the key statements on what justification is all about. You want a definition of justification? According to the traditional view, there it is. For our sake God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Well, Tom Wright doesn't agree with that particular interpretation. And here's his comment on it. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is, which, I, is which, as I have argued elsewhere, not as a matter of good exegesis, a statement of soteriology, but of apostolic vocation. It's not about how you get saved, but what it means to be called as an apostle, or for that matter, to be called as the people of God. The entire passage is about the way in which Paul's new covenant ministry, okay, Paul's been called to be an apostle, 
And indeed, 2 Corinthians largely is about what it means for him to be an apostle. That's almost a statement of the theme of 2 Corinthians. The way in which Paul's new covenant ministry through the death and resurrection of Jesus is in fact God's appointed means for establishing and maintaining the church. So that we might become God's righteousness in him means that in Christ those who are called to be apostolic preachers actually embody God's own covenant faithfulness. Now this is crucial. For Paul, according to Tom Wright, the righteousness of God could be summed up as, could be paraphrased as, the covenant faithfulness of God. And I'm going to try to demonstrate that here in a minute. It's not talking about some sort of substance that could be transferred from God to us. It means his covenant faithfulness. Again, more on that in a minute. So that what Paul is saying here is that God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin. Again, that's taking care of the sin problem. So that in Him we might become the covenant righteousness of God, that we might become basically ambassadors for Christ, that we might have the ministry of reconciliation, that what God did through Christ, He can now do through the apostles and through the church. So us becoming the righteousness of God is not the righteousness of Christ being imputed to us. By the way, note that that doesn't say righteousness of Christ. This says righteousness of God. It's the covenant faithfulness of God which becomes our calling. We embody that, that ministry of reconciliation to the world that God Himself accomplished in Jesus. You see how that works? So righteousness of God is the covenant faithfulness of God and we become, well, we tell the story of Israel and the story of Jesus in our own lives, in our own walks. This is something that's, this is the practical relevance of Wright's understanding of Paul. God, the Creator God, chose Israel to be a blessing to the world. Israel failed. Jesus succeeded. And now He's called us to be little Christ, little Jesuses, embodying that story. So that the Creator God chose us in Jesus to be a blessing to the world. So that we take on that same vocation of reconciliation, that same vocation of being a blessing to the world that that Israel failed at and that Christ succeeded at. So this becomes our calling. That's, that's 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 the practical value for the church of Paul's theology, according to Tom Wright. And here's the argument for taking righteousness of God to mean a covenant faithfulness of God instead of some sort of attribute or something that can be transferred from one person to another in the way that imputation understands it. Imputation says the righteousness of God is something that's taken from God and, and sort of cloaked or clothed upon um, a person. And here's, here's Tom Wright's argument for not taking that phrase, the righteousness of God, in that way. The main argument for taking the kaiosune theu, and that's simply the Greek for righteousness of God. So the main argument for taking the righteousness of God to denote an aspect of the character of God himself is the way in which Paul is summoning up a massive biblical and intertestamental theme found not least in Isaiah 40-55, to which I have argued elsewhere is vital for him. God's dekaiosune, his Tzedakah, his righteousness, is that aspect of his character because of which, despite Israel's infidelity and consequent banishment, 
God will remain true to the covenant with Abraham and rescue her nonetheless. This righteousness is, of course, a form of justice. God has bound himself to the covenant, or perhaps we should say God's covenant is binding upon him. And through this covenant, he has promised not only to save Israel, but also thereby to renew creation itself. Notice how consistent right is. If you read him enough, the same theme comes out again and again. The Creator God chose Israel to be a blessing to the world. And his righteousness is God making sure that that happens. Even if Israel fails, he'll make sure that the covenant succeeds through Christ. Now, I can't resist. I once, Wright says this all the time, Isaiah 40 to 55, not least in Isaiah 40 to 55, as, as a demonstration of the righteousness of God having to do with this covenant faithfulness. So I picked up my Bible one day and I read Isaiah 40 to 55 on one sitting and underlined all the passages in which righteousness comes up in that sense. And it's, it's there. Um, Isaiah 42, just to give you a few passages to, to demonstrate this use of the righteousness of God. Isaiah 42, 6, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. Okay, so this is God. He's talking about his unrighteousness, so it is the righteousness of God by definition. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. Kind of sums up Tom Wright's theology. Maybe actually Paul's theology there, doesn't it? Because his righteousness is making Israel to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. There's the captivity theme coming up again. So God's righteousness is releasing his people from captivity, releasing them from the exile. That's the theme in Isaiah 40 to 55 again and again. Let's find another one here. Oh, here's a good one. Isaiah 45, 13. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. God speaking, so this is the righteousness of God. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free. So the righteousness of God is his covenant faithfulness to release his exiles. Uh, there it is. And of course, the release of the exiles from Babylon was understood as a new exodus. So you've got the same, that, that storyline constantly in Isaiah. Um, Isaiah 46.12, Listen to me, you stubborn hearted, you who are far from righteousness. I am bringing my righteousness near. So that would be the righteousness of God. It is not far away and my salvation will not be delayed. I will grant salvation to Zion, my splendor to Israel. And in context, that's a new exodus release from captivity in Babylon. And so, so on and so forth. There are several other places. My salvation will last forever. My righteousness will never fail. My righteousness will last forever. My salvation through all generations. In Isaiah 51. And so on. So that, those are the sorts of passages that Tom Wright is, is thinking of here. And he's saying, look, Paul is simply using righteousness of God in an Isianic way in the Old Testament. It's his covenant faithfulness. So that when you become the righteousness of God, you become, as it were, an embodiment of the covenant faithfulness of God. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 is. So you can't really use that passage to support imputation. That's not what he's talking about in context. His, and Tom Wright says, look, whichever explanation makes better sense of the context, fits better into the context, that interpretation wins. You just can't take it, you just can't pluck out the little verse and use it the way you want to use it. It has to make sense in context. And so he's saying, my interpretation makes a lot better sense of the, the larger context. 
Another quote from Tom Wright, his Rutherford House lecture. All this is, a lot of this is, not all this, but a lot of it's on, available online, and I've noted that where, where it is available online. You can see this real meaning of the righteousness of God. Most clearly, if you remember the context of the Jewish law court, which forms the background for Paul's forensic law court, use of the Dikaiosune righteousness thing. For the judge to be righteous, it is necessary that he try the case fairly, refuse bribes or other favoritism, uphold the law, and take special note for the helpless, the widows, and so on. When either the plaintiff or the defendant is declared righteous at the end of the case, there is no sense that in either case the judge's own righteousness has been passed on to them by imputation, impartation, or any other process. What they have is a status of righteous, um, a status of righteous which comes from the judge. So he says, look, look, Paul understands this in a law court setting. The proper righteousness of the judge is to judge things fairly and declare the innocent righteous and the, the, um, the guilty not righteous, to declare them guilty. But you don't have any sense in the law court where you have some sort of attribute that passes from the judge to the defendant. So the righteousness of God is the righteousness of, the God, of God as a judge, uh, understood in this case to be the judge who is fulfilling his, his covenantal promises. And then I couldn't resist this famous quote from Tom Wright because it's quoted so often and um, it's typical Tom Wright. Righteousness is not an object, a substance, or a gas, which can be passed across the courtroom. So passing gas is not what you do with respect to righteousness, according to Tom Wright. To imagine the defendant somehow receiving the judge's righteousness is simply a category mistake. That's not how the language works. So he says, look, we have a certain metaphor here. It's a law court metaphor. And if you want to stick with the metaphor, you can't talk about the righteousness of the judge, God in this case, being somehow transferred. That's just not how the language works. And it's clearly not how the language works in Isaiah 40 to 55. Now, if you have this understanding of the righteousness of God, you just remove in one fell swoop most of the proof text for imputation because those proof texts usually rely on the the righteousness of God, somehow becoming the people's, especially 2 Corinthians 5.21. Well, maybe it's not there. Maybe exegetically it's not there. Now, don't worry. Tom Wright has such a strong understanding of incorporation that we receive all the benefits of Christ by being in Christ. What he's objecting to here is the, is the use of imputation language and, and using those particular texts as proof texts for this notion that somehow the righteousness or obedience of Christ is transferred and becomes ours. We receive all the blessings of Christ. We saw that in the initial quote. We're in Christ. We receive the benefits of his death and resurrection. That's all there. But he objects to the way in which the Reformation uses imputation language and has this notion of transferring this righteousness of God to Caiusunetheu across to the defendant, as it were. And I think he has a point. Now, the objection that would immediately be lodged by someone reading that would be, well, what about Philippians 3.9? Is in Philippians 3.9 a pretty clear indication of what Paul means in those other passages? And, of course, you're all wondering, well, what is Philippians 3.9? And here it is. This is Paul speaking. I want to gain Christ 
and be found in him. I can't resist. Be found in him. There's that incorporation again. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, a righteousness from God based on faith. And typically what people will do is they'll say, look, there it is. That's the explanation of what righteousness of God means. Because here Paul's explicit. In Philippians 3, he explicitly says the righteousness from God. Because, you know, righteousness of God is kind of ambiguous. But here he's explicit. Here he makes clear what he means is that imputed righteousness from God given to us in Christ. And Tom Wright says, no, that's not what he's doing there. Wright says no. The key phrase here, importantly, is not the kaiosune theu, the righteousness of God or God's righteousness, but the kaiosune ek theu. And it's not the same phrase. There's a righteousness of God and there's a righteousness from God. A righteousness from God. All too often, scholars have referred to this passage as though it could be the yardstick for uses of the kaiosune theu, the righteousness of God. But this is impossible. You can't interpret that phrase, righteousness of God, in light of the phrase, righteousness from God. Right? Saying they're two completely different things. Thinking back to the Hebrew law court, which we have, what we have here is the righteousness, the status which the vindicated party possesses as a result of the court's decision. This is a righteous status from God, and this is not as we saw, God's own righteousness. So again, yeah, sure, you have a righteousness from God that comes from you being declared righteous. God does declare you righteous. That's what a judge does. You are righteous because of Christ. We'll talk about how that works next week. But that's not the same thing as some sort of attribute of God or Christ being imputed to you. He's saying the righteousness of God means that at some point he says he vindicates you and declares you to be righteous but that's not the same, same thing as something that belongs to Christ, his obedience or his righteousness now being transferred to you. So he's saying, look, what we have here is the righteous status of the defendant, but it has nothing, well, it has something to do with the righteousness of God, but, but it's not a transfer as a, as a substance or gas across the, cas- the, the, uh, the courtroom. Okay. I've got 15 minutes to do um, Romans, and I, I would love to do Romans 3, 21 through 26, but briefly, are there any questions? Are you, are you, are you tracking with me so far? Okay. Yes. Just one clarification, maybe just to put this in terms that I understand. Um, so basically then what you're saying in the sum up is that instead of us taking Christ A plus and taking his test and, and submitting it as our own, Christ is taking our test that we submitted that would deserve an F and marking it with an A plus and giving it back to us. Okay, I have to think about that metaphor. <laughs> I, and, I, and, I, and I know that, that that's the sort of that's, that's the sort of exactly the sort of story I, we, we used to use. I maybe used it in a varsity. We used to use that sort of notion. I remember when we did the university book table, we would say, you know, around, especially around exam time, you know, does God grade on a curve and you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> Just to get conversation going, you know. And everybody would say, we'd say, hey, do you think God grades on the curve? Actually, he doesn't. You just failed. You've got a big fat F. What are you going to do about it? Well, Christ, you, you can take Christ A plus for your own. Um, I, I, don't, I, I don't know if that metaphor works at all. I mean, 
Wright really is going to insist on, on the biblical metaphor. He's, he's really going to insist on, on the way in which the story of Jesus becomes our own because he fulfills the story of Israel, brings us out of bondage. And if we unite ourselves with him instead of with Israel, which was a real option in the first century, or with Adam, which is what your default position, then, then that story which is outlined in Isaiah 53 becomes ours. Because that's, that's, that's God's story. It's the story of, of humiliation and leading to exaltation and vindication and release from bondage because the, the, the exile has been exhausted. Um, and so there's, really, there's not this notion of an act of obedience. There's not this notion of Christ taking a test for us and getting an A plus and we get the A plus. It's that we participate in the story which, which, which is once the exile is over, the restoration comes. And if I could think of an acad- uh, a, a testing paper way of putting that, I'd be happy to do it. But basically, that's the, the way the story works. Once the exile is over, where you are in that narrative is restoration. And that's precisely where Jesus is in the story. He's already in restoration. God's, res- God's glorified body. Um, he's in the new heavens. And we're waiting to join him in that part of the story, but actually we're a little bit behind. So... I don't know. I'd have to. I'd have to that, that's the story of Moses. In the Hebrew court, Darius declares us righteous. How can he do that on the basis of Christ? What other basis can there be? So it begins to feel like all that it isn't is well, imputation in the abstract. Well, yeah, but this is what we're going to have to get to next week, which is Tom Wright's definition of righteous. I've sort of put that off, but but there's so many issues, and so here's not to overwhelm us at the moment, but. But the declaration of righteous is not a moral status according to to Tom Wright. So just to leave it at that for the moment, we'll circle back around.